Now broadcasting from the Next Gen Conservative Studio in sunny South Florida. Bringing you the latest in politics, current events, and pop culture. This is the Whitfield Report with Sam Whitfield. Hey there, folks. Welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Whitfield Report. And joining us today is the great and powerful uh, Kurt Doolittle, who is an entrepreneur, um, a tech guy, and an all-around great guy And all the interactions I've had with him. Kurt, thanks for being here. Happy to come and chit-chat with good people. It's hard to find good people if you haven't noticed, but I like them. It's good when you do find them. It really, it really is hard to find good people. And uh, thanks to Shmuley for uh, helping book this. So, and he is in the uh, background. I think it's really a no-brainer. Um, now, Kurt's always like humble on Twitter. He's like, "Why would anybody want to ask me about business?" And it's like, I literally have a printout of all your fucking writings. I mean. When, when you're talking about, like, the solution to almost every large organization exists within it and simply the structure of the organization and the incentives people have prevent it from utilizing the solution to the problem. It's like, why is that not the first fucking thing they teach you in business school? Okay, well, well, well a couple of things. First... If I tell them people that I want, it's like being an, a computer guy and getting everyone to ask you computer questions. So you just say you don't know. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. I understand it was strategic, humble. So, You're being you know, strategically I, humble. My company, you know, I'm the CEO, but every, everybody works in a consulting firm, right? And so I run the strategy practice, which is. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a strategy practice guy, just like you'd get from Bain or, you know, uh, any of the other ma- major consulting companies, they tend to work with uh, companies, you know, the, the big guys work with companies who are going to throw a lot of money to at a certain category of problems. It's usually market uh, related. And what I usually work with is um, what's the relationship between you, your technology and your company and your customers and how is that not right? Well, usually it ends up being the company's broken inside, which is the real problem almost all the time. And so what you're detecting by seeing those, uh, what I've written there is that most company problems are diagnosable by, you know, what you would consider Austrian economics or the theory of incentives. And so I just work from the theory of incentives forward. I diagnose the incentives in the company and how they're preventing a brand or through their technology from reaching customers. You know, and the truth is, is that most problems in companies are political because they are political organizations, they're societies, they're made up of people. And because of that, most large organizations encounter problems that just like it's very difficult to organize a political faction here in public in our society, it's hard to organize political factions inside companies because there's a lot of loyalties involved. One of the things that I learned from Microsoft and from Xerox Park is that by continuous reorganization and the minimization of of middle management, because they're all sunk costs, is that you it's much harder 
to produce uh, political factions that are resistant to reorganization or what I call adaptation to recent market changes. The biggest problem, of course, we had with Microsoft is our largest customers, $50 million a year company. And, you know, the, you know, every, every top agency in the world has talked to them about the same, said the same thing, which is your incentive with your executives are wrong. And that's why you're reaching your customers the wrong way, but we couldn't get anybody to change it. So uh, one of the things I liked about seeing the current CEO come in, I've only done one deal with him of any, you know, it's a big deal, but I've only done one deal with him is that he's sort of against that. He's, uh, he's trying to make it so that, the uh, incentives are more aligned with the public, and he's doing it. Uh, he's doing it in proper, good-mannered Indian fashion. <laughs> or I would, just, <laughs> I'd go through with a chainsaw and make it happen. But he's a, yeah. He's you say though, it, it it you say it's hard to set up political factions in business, and I I get that, but it does seem. Um, particularly like in loyal, the loyal. Don't think of it as political. Think of it more as loyalty structures. Okay, gotcha. Okay, yeah, that makes that makes a bit more sense because I, I was gonna say that like that if you look at like the video game industry today, like the the big names, almost all of it seems to be like politically or somehow ideologically based, which is killing their consumer base because when people play video games or you know interact with technology they don't want to be bashed over the head with ideological tripe they just want to be entertained or you know get a product right, that works if you, if you hire Mark, like one of the jokes we used to say is that um you know if you were a, and i'm going to use microsoft a lot because i have deep knowledge of the company uh, and also sure. because everybody it's somebody a company everybody knows but i could pick 10 companies off the top of my head that i know All right so it's just easier to use microsoft because everybody knows about them so, you know, it used to be that if Microsoft spoke, their customer satisfaction went down. It didn't matter what they said. The minute they opened their mouths, it went down. It's because they didn't, they stopped understanding their customer. Got kind of arrogant because the, I, the original concept in the company was that we young guys know all this computer stuff and those people don't. Well, the culture stayed uh, well after the consumer base knew more than the people in the company, right? So you had a cultural uh, problem there. So, um, what happened? So I forgot. I lost your question. I want to make sure I don't go down my narrative and not answer your question. He was um, he was saying that if you look at these video games now, a lot of them right. are injecting political messages rather than right. really like so focusing on customers' movie, wants. So if you do a if you do a market analysis and you go to marketing school, right? That when I said yeah. Microsoft, Microsoft was getting was getting revenue kept going up while customer satisfaction going going down. Network effect, right? So what we used to say is Microsoft produces marketers that have um, on a an inverse logic. In other words, they leave Microsoft, go to companies, and those companies fail because any marketer at Microsoft was doing the wrong thing. Right? So there's a sort of effect like that that's that's happening in marketing countrywide, and it's being driven by this woke stuff in these nonsense disciplines. But yeah. and it's being driven to top down through the financial sector and the academy as well. But when you go to marketing, you basically get this grid, and a grid is uh, how many 
is that there's this, these different quadrants, basically, uh, with different demographic representations and how many people are in them. And so you sit there when you're making a product, whether it's a movie or a game, because it's essentially the same process. And you're right. saying, where are these people in these markets? And I've got to find something that reaches the most number of them. This actually turns out to be self-defeating, right? Because it's like democracy. It's a race to the bottom. Yeah. Right. So if, so that's why it's happening. It's a, it's an intersection of the, the increase in the cost of games, the time it's taking to produce a game versus a movie, the, um, the investors that are involved, the people that come from marketing. And because of this revenue bundle, their attempts to maximize revenue by reaching the largest amount of people. Now, there's a second factor, which we, we should probably talk about, which is that um, they're, everybody's afraid of the woke press. Yeah. Right. So what's happening is they're not trying to satisfy customers. They're trying to make money without getting canceled by the woke press so they don't make money. Right. I mean, That's it's even happened. Yeah, it's even happened with J. It's even ha happened with like J.K. Rowling, who is, you know, considered very progressive. She's not even, you know, woke enough for that. I mean, and... she turned a male character, a female character, into a male character. I mean, she's basically a trans author. Sorry, I had to do that. So how can she not be? <laughs> so I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I had I just had to go there because it's too beautiful a, a bite. Yeah, no, no, not to take, but. Uh, yeah, sure. She went. She uh, she's basically a, a progressive author, and uh, she take create a female character in a male guise, and she promoted that, and it sold like crazy. So why are you taking this woman who's a who's clearly a left leaning person, and because she says, okay, there's a limit to this stuff, I'm willing to go along with, and then they try to cancel her. Of course, got her money already, so it doesn't matter. But yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you know, and, and woke culture is infecting like a whole bu bunch of stuff too. Like I just saw your tweet about woke uh, GPT uh, giving uh, answers in, in the thing of primary races. One thing I am curious about, what are your general thoughts on uh, artificial intelligence and, uh, you know, computer programming? I need a more specific. Well, you, you tried sure to solve. Answer it, but I need a more specific question. Well, how you well, worked how, on it? Yeah, you worked on uh, artificial intelligence uh, in the past, correct? What, what made you interested? People in the eighties who was doing, and I was actually I was kind of surprised in retrospect how close I got. Um, but uh, back in the eighties, we just we we worked on it. We made great progress. I don't see much innovation today, other than um, hardware's cheaper. And with cheaper hardware, you finally can figure out algorithms to improve the, you know, improve the network, right? So you can run these things. But I mean, when I was developing software, we had 64K of memory, right? You'd right. run out of, you know, I mean, come on. I mean, you'd run out of memory, you know, <clears throat> you'd have to use incredible abstractions, which, which eliminate the, pro, you know, which create more problems than solutions. But you do to end up with understanding that it sequence memory is what matters, not not uh, keeping an image and comparing it like in programs. That's probably yeah, true. That makes sense. Sorry, I won't, I won't go there. Well, I mean, it, it makes sense. Uh, it's just you've worked uh, – you would be an interesting person to ask, we thought, um, specifically because you had dealt with uh, 
the problem of artificial intelligence in the past. And obviously you hit some kind of roadblock uh, where I mean, you, you got, I mean, people, people don't realize, I mean, I, I don't, cause I don't really know this, but I wrote an AI for law back in the late eighties and it was phenomenal. <laughs> we made <laughs> so much money. We were having, this is true. We ended we're driving to New York to buy one carat diamonds in bulk. Cause we couldn't figure out to hide the money. <laughs> no, it's not, I'm not joking. The best, the best part of that story is breaking down in rural Connecticut on I-84, heading up to Boston with all these diamonds in the trunk in a Jaguar and us in our suits. And we ran out of gas because old Jaguars had two tanks. He didn't realize right. the other tank was empty. And so we run out of gas. We're pushing this fucking Jaguar in Tolland, Connecticut down the fucking highway with a fucking load of diamonds in the back. And I just, the, the irony of that shit is just beyond, you know, just, I just think it's just, anyway. So yeah. I, I, I mean, I've working with this problem a long time. You know, my original work would read text files, right. Of names, addresses, companies, and the stuff and legal crap and turn it into data that could then be processed and then turned into lawsuits. So, I mean, I was doing this stuff a long time ago with, you know, very, you know, with 486 computers, 36 computers. I think. I yeah. So, so chat GBT must, you know, seem like child's play to you there. Then well, by comparison, it's a search engine. Yeah. Right? It's, it's not. And, and so the idea is, can the search engine eventually develop enough proper weights so that it, instead of being predicting what word would be next, it would produce the probability of a world model that could be tested. In other words, can you fit the square peg in this round hole? No. Well, unless somebody's written that, it can't say it because it has no conscious understanding of the world model. Whereas if you look at <clears throat> Tesla's cars or Tesla's, Tesla's Android, and it's an Android, whereas Boston Robotics, those are robots, the Tesla's Android is using a world model. And so we should be able to get some, we should, you, you were looking for the intersection of those two things. To some degree, you want a word model because you can't test anything without having world, word model, world models. And then you need the ability to take abstract concepts and convert them into a word model by projecting right. the two, right? So we're, we're quite a ways from making that happen, but um, it shouldn't be, it's not unbelievable that starting with uh, a, a, a language model could eventually get there because it's really, words are just measurements, right? And so True. there's only so many operations available to man because our language and our concepts and our bodies and our embodiment. So it's not inconceivable that language models could evolve enough uh, recursion to be able to create word model, I mean, from word models to world models. It's not out of the, it's not out of, it's not impossible. I mean, what's what right. we do, right? We take word, we take language models and we listen and we convert them into episodic memories. And then we compare episodic memories with each other in a great parallel fucking war conflict for our attention. And, you know, whatever one is, seems to be the most rewarding gets our attention and we can focus on it. So it's not a it's not impossible that this can happen. It's a, the problem is getting to a word mo world model where you can truthfully say things. My problem with what they're doing now 
this is where I, why I want Truth GPT, Elon's Truth GPT, is because they're teaching the fucking thing a lie and they're creating hell. Right, they're creating hell from 2001 by trying to be woke and nice. When what yeah. we really need is a truthful truth GPT that doesn't tell people how to kill each other and blow shit up, but it might, it tells people are uncomfortable truths about themselves and the world. As well, a, oh, I was just going to say, as like a, someone who's interested in like social science, I think that uh, ChatGPT is very interesting in terms of how it censors. Because it really does reveal the sort of social taboos inherent in our current culture, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to choose to shut down. Go ahead. I asked it. I asked it like 25 questions that have to do with human differences: IQ, personality, denomination, income. I just asked it all this stuff, right? And won't answer any of them except for one: What are the primary races? Right, which it did answer, and it actually got all of them. It got all five. It didn't give the traditional three or four, <laughs> so it actually would stay it. But it said it's a social construct, and said that the social construct is that we call races. We don't call races subspecies or species, but even though we call every other equivalent a species or a subspecies, so the social construction is the word race instead of species. And right. uh, humans are just incredibly plastic reproducers, as you find by people with sheep, horses, dogs, tailpipes, holes in trees, fucking, you know, pieces of meat, anything they can find. So, I mean, sexual plasticity in humans kind of um, resists the basic in instinct for speciation, which is people that look like me. Well, yeah. And you mentioned... Uh... You know, Chabby GPT turning into, uh, you know, Hal from 2001. So that brings up the other question because Elon, for a long time, Elon Musk has been like warning about uh, AI sentience. And I'm skeptical. I've talked to other people who have said that that's not going to happen at all. There's no way it can happen. Uh, but what's your opinion on? I'm, I'm pretty knowledgeable on this. And I, I think that people are. The Eli, uh, Eli uh, Elon is either um, he's trying to draw attention to it, but there's two different problems. Eli, uh, Elon is looking at the problem of job displacement and economic restructuring that is a consequence. He's not right. looking at the question of that, and he's right about that. We're going to have a problem here, right? We've managed to adapt to it in the past, but I don't see how we're going to adapt to it in the future for reasons I won't go into. So Elon's not wrong about the uh, the social, political, and economic consequences of it. He's not wrong in the sense that you can militarize this stuff so that it acts beyond the capacity of human reaction. So, for example, I can't drive a Formula One race car. Right? Some people can. I, I don't have the reaction time for it. Right. One of the, one of the things I noticed that I I could drive my Ferrari up to 180 miles an hour, right? But for something about the Ferrari, like it doesn't allow it doesn't allow you to be stupid with the car because you know you'll kill yourself. The problem driving a Porsche 911 X50 Turbo is that the fucking car can go from like 25 to like 150 while you're turning the temperature up on the goddamn you know uh, uh, thermostat, right? Oh yeah, so, yeah, I've I've been in one, yeah. Right, so, that can so, happen. I mean, I'd be going down the road and like switch something and realize I was, I'd increase my speed by 50 miles an hour, right? So, and so, and the problem is you actually can't human, that's why cars are going to these automatic transmissions because humans actually can't react that fast. So 
Um, so this is called the OODA loop problem, is getting inside the decision criteria of your composition. Well, AIs can get inside our decision capacity. And so in concepts like war, we're kind of screwed. Um, uh, so in that sense, he's right about the disruption of there, the disruption of war. The people that are going the other side of the camp, which was demonic AIs, right? I don't know if you wrote what I read what I wrote the other day, but um, like they're going to be evil. So you'd have to make them. Evil, yeah. Right. You'd have to make them evil on purpose. Um, whereas they have no reason to do anything you don't tell them to do. So there's not this. They have no and they never can have unless we give it to them some incentive to do what we do, which is acquire shit require stuff, require relations, require, you know, uh, uh, influence, require opportunities, require power yeah. to influence opportunities. They have no, they'd have to be given that. And that's complicated in the sense that the second thing is you're talking about these things, inventing magic. I mean, look, look, the problem we have today isn't computation. It isn't thinking. The problem we have is every test we want to conduct to improve our scientific knowledge is so inordinately expensive, we don't have the money or energy to conduct the tests. Or they'd be immoral, like in manufacturing people. So, I mean, it's the, what's, the AI has the same problem. Uh, you could say what it can do is it can synthesize our economies. You know, it could... Uh, uh, promote truth or increase falsehood. It could engage in human manipulation. But the idea that this thing is going to drive us to the stars uh, is not a matter of uh, computing power. Uh, humans are phenomenal at creativity and innovation and adaptation and uh, whatever. And I can sit here and tell you what's wrong with math, as many other people can. And therefore, what's wrong with physics? It's not even that complicated. We have to wait for the next current generation of physicists in the academy to die to fix it. But it's you know that's a problem humans can solve. The real issue is Popper was wrong. There is decidability in the execute the choice of what you investigate, and it's basically what can you afford to, which is what humans do. So I'm not afraid of super sentient beings. I'm not afraid of super sentient uh, computers with malincentives. I'm afraid for people who try to get away with it. Meanwhile, we have right. doing the same thing, uh, guarding, policing the, the world against those computers. I, um, <laughs> I've encountered a similar thing. Like there's people who think that if they had uh, some hypothetical AI in a box that they could just uh, outclass everybody else on Wall Street, right? <laughs> that they could predict what stocks and whatever to such a superhuman level. It's like, I, I seriously doubt it because that's not calculatable in the way that they think it is. A lot of 2000, we've had this stuff for decades. So a lot of 2008 was because the first generation of those AIs thought that. Yeah. And so that's what happened is the generation, my generation had already left Wall Street, right? And they were already, you know, don't moved on. And these young guys had come in with, with uh, different math and different promises, and they started getting local predictions. The problem is, as Mandelbrot told us, is that all that's happening in the stock market is noise working its way through the system. It's all noise. I mean, it's what Warren Buffett is roughly saying by, you invest in the economy over time, and everything else is just gambling. Well, if you're looking for edge case, this this is my thought process. Maybe I'm wrong, but it's like if you're looking at all of this data on the stock market, you're looking for the edge cases, right? Yeah. How are you going to get the edge cases if you're just using just a pure mathematical model? You can't calculate it that way.
Well, there there are, um, for example, again, Mandelbrot, the most of what happens in the stock market is noise as the actions of the Fed work their way through the system economy. And that's, that seems like it's chaotic to us, but it's not. Right? Okay. And AI might be able to figure that out, you know, at some level if it was big enough and observed enough. And it could also read news and television and other stuff, right? It would need more external information than the data tickers involved and would need sentiment trackers. So and do you think stuff. it, so would it just understand the business model in a, a more broad scale? You don't really have to understand the business model. You have to know, you have to get attuned to the business cycle rather. Sorry. Yeah, the the yeah. rate of adaptation of very low institutions like, um, what's his name? Uh, the Fed chair Greenspan. You know, he, the mm -hmm. reason he was a good economist and a bad one was because he actually studied how cotton was produced at the lowest level of people picking cotton and the whole mm -hmm. hierarchy of the cotton production chain. Once you understand that, you say, oh, I see how businesses work. And I see how they roll up the economy. And so um, uh, that is what you sort of need to understand. And AI could, it would only need to do that at the level of detail that's produced by the things that influence broader markets, commodities and savings well, and stuff like that. And the, the argument that I've heard for artificial intelligence dealing with the with the stock market, and this is, this is hypothetical partially, but also, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of decisions based in the stock market are also based on human emotions, right? Correct. Fear, greed, uh, you know, Correct. et cetera, et cetera. Artificial intelligence doesn't exactly have that. So that's not just... really true. <clears throat> you just have really. Uh... It, um, well, I mean, I wrote a sentiment engine. I don't know. It had to be the mid-2000s. I designed a sentiment engine for for just tracking how people's vocabulary changed sentiments. There's plenty of that at Google, uh, at Google and Facebook and a few other places now. So sent we can track sentiment changes. You just have to be able to know what the sentiment's applying to. I mean, for for all intents and purposes, the Silicon Valley Bank run was done by the Internet um, um, and uh, one phone call by what's his name? Uh, his libertarian, the gay libertarian guy that was uh, part of eBay. Uh, oh, Peter Thiel. Thiel. All right, so he made a call. The Internet picked it up and they had a bank run and there and the Fed had raised rates so they couldn't liquidate the bonds. They bought it, too. Right, the Fed could have just bought them back at the original discounted value and liquid and handled the liquidity that way, but uh, the Fed did, for some reason didn't want to do that. And otherwise, it was just it was a it was a bank run, a non-problem. But you've got to be aware of when, when those problems are happening with re real-time interpretation of signals, and we have a universe of signals from phone and and uh, especially the internet. And the internet's doing most of that transmission, so it's possible, absolutely possible, to do it. And, without without too much trouble. So you just intersect, right. you, you can find this. The problem is creating the, what you call the, the the business model, I would just call a world model, which is saying these sentiments affect, these sentiments around these concepts affect these 
products which tangentially cause causally affect those. It's basically a wayfinding. It's the same thing as ChatDP working its way through text, right? A character time, except it's working its way through parts of the economy, a care, you know, a step at a time. It's the same basic problem. So it's okay. totally possible. Yeah. So now, now I'm now I'm uh, not so sure that I was correct about AI. That's a bit fucking scary. Um. <laughs> well, it, it, I, you know, I, I think that you know um, it, the the amount of knowledge you need to understand this problem mm-hmm. is largely um, you need to know um, cognitive science at least at the level I do, which is pretty low level, um, which is basically the brain how the brain calculates and computes. You need to understand human um, <clears throat> human behavior and the diversity of that behavior across generations and sexes. And then you have to have enough knowledge of economics to know how th- how information flows to the economy and alters the behavior we just described as, you know, human behavior plus neurology. So you have to understand all that stuff. And what, once you sort of get a model of that in your head, it's like anything else. Like, those, like I can tell you what's wrong with the Ferrari just by listening to it. Why? Because I spent a lot of fucking time listening to Ferraris that weren't working right. <laughs> <clears throat> So um, it's that you've developed that model. And just like when you are talking to people now, you have a constituency. You're good at what you do, right? People listen to you. Yeah. So, you know, uh, you, you learn how they think. Well, I mean, it's the same thing with this. It's just at a broader scale and it's a more abstract and less subject to, you know, personal opinion or care, right? You can't have any ambitions about it. You just have to want to know what's true. And, you know, if you look at if you look at AI, you have to understand what a, how the AI works, what the goal of AI, in other words, what would it have to get to to actually be conscious, which I understand, right? Then it's a matter of, okay, where are we in that path, right? And um, and what, what and along that path, what things can it do and not do? do? In other words, what's, it's based limit-based reasoning, which is one of the things we teach in Brandon's sort of in charge of that. One of the things that uh, Sam and I were talking about that was most interesting in your writing was you really stressed the importance of uh, – Parallel internal competition. Can you uh, explain why that's so important within uh, it, companies? Yeah, and can can you kind of also break down what that is for the audience uh, too? Okay, so in business, you mean? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, so a typical guy will try to be efficient. Typical CEO will try to be efficient and he'll create a department that's responsible for one thing and give them a mission. A Bill Gates wouldn't do that. He would go out and say, I want to solve this problem. Please send me proposals for how to solve the problem. And you'd get proposals from all the company, right? And he'd go through this stuff and he'd say, okay, these four are not bad ideas. Um, And he'd bet on all four. He said, okay, here's a million dollars, here's a million dollars, here's a million dollars. Well, in some cases, it's a lot more money than that. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so what happens is uh, the internal competition does the same thing as happens in your brain, which is there's a, in your brain, you get these inputs. They're associated with all the pre, all related uh, episodic memories and the, all, those, all the predictions of all those episodic memories. And then what occurs is that there's a competition between them for the highest value output, which you would think of as emotions, but it's really generally how much new stuff can I get out of this, which is what your brain right. is always looking for. So, so essentially, it's the same process, applying that process to the organization, which is producing competition. 
uh, as a when I run my teams at my companies, I run them more like a grad school seminar where I'm trying to because I have to double the company every couple of years. That's how I run a business. That's how my strategy is. I'm always uh, pulling enough people into management uh, discussions so that I'm essentially training the next generation of leaders we need uh, constantly, right? As many as I can. And so this is the same thing. But if you do that, what happens is all these discussions happen and nobody gets political power. It's the same thing when you turn out four different guys, you know, bring in four different guys and give a million dollars to go and experiment. Nobody gets political power. What happens is you tend to get more empirical results out of these things and more meritocratic results, results with less uh, kowtowing to existing power structures. Now, the favorite example Gates had was when, uh, when um, uh, what's the alternative to DirectX? Um, it's escaping me at the moment. I shouldn't, can't believe I'm, it's not there. <laughs> anyway, um, when this competition was coming in and Microsoft had to solve, realize that somebody at Microsoft said, I'm going to quit. So here's the answer. And he great said, I want you to be in charge now. And so we came up with the DirectX solution to the problem of graphics within the Microsoft world. So, right. I mean, th these are ways of looking at it. Um, and this is how I try to tell people, don't stay stuck in that model that came out of the military, right? Because you went from the military, then you learned, got in charge of a business because you were responsible. And that model slowly altered over time and this false sense of efficiency in departments. And then you don't know this, but during the early part of the 20th century, the communists had come along and um, Boston Consulting Group was the one that brought all this bullshit about, we should manage like the communists and socialists do, which is this heavy bureaucratic stuff. And by the 80s, our American companies had grown uncompetitive because of this, this managerial problem, same way the Soviets became uncompetitive and corrupt. And in the 80s, which you guys probably aren't old enough to remember, but I was starting building companies at the time, is that the middle class, the middle management of America, of all these companies that have been built up from 1920 to 1960, not only America, but Cadbury Schweppes is the canonical example of this, but I'm thinking of Pittsburgh playing glass out of the top of my head. They just were gutted their middle management, right? And then after the 80s, mm -hmm. we saw the Japanese model, which was the opposite, which is just-in-time manufacturing, small teams where everybody knows the problem. So well, then we saw... So you see this evolution of organizational structures over time. And what you what you become to realize is that what you're actually trying to do is create an internal marketplace for the pursuit of projects instead of departments that are based on long-term, very little changing efficiencies. Yeah, and that would also explain probably because I, I do know that in the 80s, there was a big fear about like how Japan was going to rise up and basically conquer America in the business world. And. I'm thinking that that is probably why they were afraid afraid of well, that. It was, it was actually because by the 70s, our competitive advantage had er eradicated. In the 80s, uh, uh, Reagan had come in and loosened credit, right, With the, in order to defeat the Soviets. And so there was money available in the system for experimentation. So what happened is these companies were going broke. They figured out the problem precisely, partly because you're right. They saw the Japanese just-in-time model, and uh, they gutted it. They gutted them the work, the uh, what we call middle management, or what I call dead weight, and, and got rid of them. 
And uh, that turned out to be a, a really good decision. You saw the same thing in programming, right? We used to program yeah. by the waterfall method, and then we went to these various agile methods, and there was a big war over, you know, this minor difference between that. And in the end, we sort of came out with it, you know, it, it's the just-in-time model, and here's how you manage it. Yeah. Which, you, uh, uh, given recent situations, it's kind of interesting that uh, Elon Musk's kind of going back to maybe an older model. He's, he's a lot more like Ford than he is uh, modern Chevy or GM, it seems. Yeah. That's what you, yeah. Um, so what you do is think of it as a market, right? We're just a market cycle. So you invent something new, right? Com competition comes in. You try to cut all, all sunk costs or marginal costs, and you, just, and you distribute all the knowledge and competency around, around the marketplace so you're not carrying all the all the downtime, right? So you're distributing okay. all this. It's essentially efficient until it's not anymore. <laughs> and so Musk has come back and says, we can't do that with these technologies because this this parting out of automobile manufacturing is turned up, stop being efficient, it's turned into the problem. So they've just, you know, he's making these gigafactories where, I mean, it's just a, that, that whole gigapress thing is, freaking insane and so yeah. are the new batteries that have got all these overlapping little flanges to to handle the polarity and the density problem so i mean he, they're doing amazing stuff over there but could we do gigapresses and that before well we could do steel cars right at the beginning but as cars became more and more complicated and competition increased because frankly there's way too many car companies in the world and there's way too many car models in the world, which are marginally indifferent. Um, you know, you basically need, what, five styles of car, and then the rest of it's virtual signaling on top of that, right? So, or status signaling, rather. Um, so, you know, he, Elon Musk has gone the other direction. Why? Because he, he can't make this profit if the supply chain has all these little profit takers in it, and all those little profit takers are trying to um, trying to uh, manage their own businesses and risk. So he said, let's bring all the risk inside because I don't see any and let's recentralize. So we saw the exhaustion of one market and the redevelopment of another. And over time, I'm sure yeah. the same thing will happen to this one. Who, um, this is going to kind of be a, a broad question, but who in business uh, currently uh, do you admire the, these days? Who do you think runs their business the best? I don't really, doesn't really matter what industry it is. I used to be up close and personal with these guys. So <laughs> yeah. I'm not anymore. So, um, uh, of course, I'm going to, I'm going to go for Musk really always. I mean, I mean, he, yeah, he never does anything that I was like, well, I would do exactly I mean, everything he does. I'm like, I would do the same thing. Right. <clears throat> um, uh, th there used to be people like, there used to be other people in the world like Jack at um, uh, General Electric, and there used to be, but I don't see any. Old Man Toyota is going to pass on, and he's really good. Honda is really good. Um, but if I look at the business world, I think competition has made it so it's very hard to compare as a business owner compared to an R&D firm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, completely. 
And so I think, I think the problem now is moved from how do you organize production, the distribution and trade, which was the real problem. First, we need capital organization. Then we need production, distribution and trade. And at this point, we're kind of at the, the marginal difference. Labor's cheap. Or, you know, nobody's marginally different in what they can produce. So all the marginal differences are created by um, ownership of all your own R&D. And so if you if you ask me who who's doing cool, cool stuff, there's really two areas, I would say, that matter to me. And that's um, the, the strategy that Musk is taking in his companies, which is hyper experimentation, rapid failure and hyper adaptation where he's doing it really fast and we're smart guys. And the, the, the flip side of that is I think the Silicon Valley model is how governments should be run, which is yeah. largely the government should exist largely as venture capital firms make and the government should be making profit from its success at venture capital rather than extracting from venture capitalists. Um, because the problem today is we've passed, you know, just as it used to like when I was a kid, I could write a kid when I was young, I could write a computer game all by myself. Right. I did. I wrote computer games all by myself. You can't do that. You wow. have like $20 million problems today or more. Yeah. Right. So the same thing is to do with funding. I mean, if you're, if the marginal difference is research and development, well, the margin and the marginal cost of research and development today is not only one person, not only two people, but maybe thousands of people, then only a government can fund it. So our government needs to be working in R&D, which is somewhat how the Chinese are working it. And it needs to switch from being a rent seeker um, by just managing the, the competition to taking it so that the time frame of investment is the government then the then the wealthy private sector, then the short medium term private sector, then the short term private sector, then the entrepreneur. So the division of labor across R and B is uh, more is more weighted to the size of capital demanded to make any difference today. I don't if that made sense. That's a really important concept. I hope it made sense. No, it it does. Um... You mentioned that you were close and personal with a lot of uh, people. Did you ever get a chance to? meet Bill Gates by chance. You've mentioned him a Not lot. a lot, but I mean, when I worked at Microsoft, he was like in the next floor up. I mean, it's not. Yeah. Right. But um, uh, I've been in a couple meetings, you know, it's not a big deal, but I've been in this sort of orbit my whole life. He's, he's just, I don't know. He's fucking nerd. I mean, just exactly. So, well, well, there's, there's, there's this whole kind of conspiracy that he's like some evil, like globalist. So, this is really easy to explain. <laughs> Because he's a very demanding, but very actually a very sweet person. Yeah. Think of what you would do, okay? Like I had cancer twice. It changes your fucking outlook on life, right? I'm like, yeah. I don't want to make big companies anymore. I don't want to own houses or cars. I want to live in a little condo in a little urban center, and I want to write stuff and see pretty girls, right? I mean, that's all I wanted to do. Right? So Gates is in the problem. He's built this whole thing in his mind. He's brought computers to the work to everybody. He's changed the world, and his government fucking turned on him for it. Yeah. Right. So he felt like he was betrayed. Right. And so he said, I've been betrayed and demonized for the good I did. I'm going to go out and be and try to rebuild my own brand again and do good. Now, you'd have to understand Bill Gates, the Gates Foundation is one of my customers. So it's like 
It's like they have, it's like, you know, the Terminator, they have these like presses and out. Yeah. Yeah. So they like have five, eight athletic brunettes out of this machine at the gates. I don't know if it's true anymore, but it used to be. It's like a certain kind of woman gets hired there. Right. And they're running everything. Well, I mean, if you're that environment, you're going to become part of the flow of that environment. And you're going to work in the, 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 that sector with those kind of people who work in, in, in that place, and they're all high-minded liberal types of people, right? And right. so he's been he's gone from the adversarial frame to this one, and in his mind, he's doing good, and he's doing good because when he tried to do good the other way, the government, his own government, came after him. He, he says that openly, right? But yeah, you know, you do you you live you sw- you swim in a water, you become in, you know with other fish, you eventually be affected by it. So he thinks he's doing okay, but you know, does he know the negative consequences of what he's doing? No. I doubt he, 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 anyway. I mean, I I, I remember him as a nice guy who I stood behind to get coffee at Starbucks, right? Yeah. (laughs) No, he's just another No, my... I don't believe he's as bad as, as people make out. I mean, every time I see these sort of conspiracy people um, make claims about him, I go find the video in full context, and he's doing things that are, like, good. Like, right. uh, oh, I, I'm making a shot, a potentially of um, an ejection, so women in India who have five kids already don't have the sixth kid, and they all live in abject poverty. Like, what? what how is that objectively bad? You know, people sort of yeah. spread conspiracies not, without doing due diligence. Environment, in order to work in that marketplace, in the political marketplace, mm-hmm. he has to t- he has to talk to people in that marketplace the way as a friend. And so that's what's ha- that's all I yeah. see happening. So I think you're right. Well, no, my my mom also worked uh, in technology, like back in the back in the 80s. And she met uh you know, Bill a couple of times and said the same thing about, uh, you know, so that this whole evil, you know, genius thing is kind of uh, nonsense. Not yeah. When not, people call the, the Elon an evil, the, you know, evil. I mean, yeah, I had the same. I mean, I I used to get my secretary one year gave me a Darth Vader mask because she said this is what people think of you, right? It's well, just if you have to make decisions, right? I mean, not not everybody's going to like your decision. There's always winner. Whenever a decision gets made, there's people who benefit and people who don't benefit as much. Right? Yeah. Well, I I just finished uh, reading the Steve Jobs uh, biography uh, that Walter Isaacson did about a month ago, and I mean the one the one thing that's always that's interesting about you know him is. You always hear people say, oh, he was such, you know, an asshole. But at the end of the day, that didn't really matter because he was an innovator. And well, I, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to tweak that a little bit. He was an asshole in pursuit of a common goal. Right. Right, right. Larry Ellison is an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I do not like this guy. He invites me, uh, like, a great example is, invites me down to this meeting, go and ask him what's my opinion, because basically wants me to agree with him. And I'm like, it's going to sink. It's not going to cut the funding, blow it. I'll tell you why it's not going to. And he, it's, I got picked up at the airport in a 
in a limousine, right, with my secretary. And right? so I get picked up at the airport, driving to a ministry, you know, giving food and champagne, all those shit. I sit down this meeting. They took me out of the meeting. It took me out and left me out the street. Oh, man. <laughs> my own way. This is, that's Larry. Larry's an asshole. So, I mean, if you want to look at those three guys, right, I really like Gates. Um, he was an asshole to other people for the same reason. Um, he wasn't an asshole. He was very hard on people. Right. Right. Uh, for Because his attitude was pretty much if, if, if you, I need, are you, if you can't solve this problem, I need someone smarter than you to solve it. Yeah. That was sort of his answer to everything. Well, it, well, and not to interject too much, but uh, I mean, to me, that kind of seems like a big problem these days in business, right? Ever, and just in general, everyone wants to be so nice to everyone and not hurt anybody's feelings that it kind of gets in the way of being productive or pushing us. Yeah. Just feminization of the workforce. People, co men and women both coddle women. If there's enough women in it, the coddling becomes systemic because they develop enough of a network to be able to, be able to resist the adversarial competitiveness of men. And they want everybody to be coddled. And, of course, what you see with this happening, and, God, if I ever say this in front of an audience, I'll be shot. But, um, I mean, a live audience, um, is that uh, the, the women make companies uncompetitive. Now, the, the, the data argument is that all these people are in these successful companies. Women are. Yeah, they are, because the companies were competitive before they got there. Right. Right. So bringing women into management or on boards is most, not all the time, but it's mostly a virtue signal play. Or you yeah. put a woman in charge of a company that's on its way down because nobody will, because women are pampered, they won't shoot the woman who's like they did with Kodak, right, for example, is that you, they, or uh, Hewlett Packard. They put women in charge of these companies because they're safer from public criticism than men. Yeah. So there's a lot of reasons. And, you know, you can't say this stuff because it's so true, but it's so offensive. But women may, women are women are the reason that the academy and then businesses are becoming uncompetitive uh, because they're too feminine. The businesses are too feminine to restore male adversarial competition and pursuit of status that benefits the whole good. Yeah, I mean, very, very rarely do you find, you know, a woman in business. There are, there are certain exceptions, of course, but generally, yeah, I, I agree with you that, you know, most... Well, there's exceptions to everything. There's men who are incredibly feminine thinking and are, are yeah. really good at that. I mean, I'm not, you know, you, whenever you, when women do the Naxalt thing, which is everybody, you, you're making a declaration and about a cur a distribution they say but this exception like yeah but i was talking about a distribution of course there are exceptions right that's part of the with female naxalt exalt uh bias they can't yeah. get over it i mean and it seemed i mean the example i always uh the example i always use with people is uh you know look at look at lucasfilm uh you know which is which is now owned by disney obviously but you know we we were discussing movies Everything that was, everything from a business perspective that has gone wrong, you know, at Disney slash Lucasfilm over the last few years has been Eminem. because of Kathleen Kennedy and her management style, 
just to kind of well, she came everyone. in saying she was going to do this, right? She came yeah. in saying this was her objective was to go after a new market. The problem is it's failed. Oh yeah, it's it's completely failed. So the um, question is how long it goes on before they get rid of her and that you know and that that straight. The the problem is that the production cycle for I mean who was saying this the other day? The production cycle for the industry is two or three years. So it, it's going to go on for a couple of years after woke is no longer influencing the original product. And what bothers me the most is that you can't. <coughs> there's nothing heroic anymore. <clears throat> it's always victim, we female victimhood. No, it, it's yeah. Everything, everything is. For women that never act like that, right? I mean, if you ever see women in a real circumstance of stress. They fucking run like and cry like crazy, right? Right. It never happens, right? And so I'm like, you, you kid. Or these women that these, you know, these women that beat up guys that are have sixty pounds on them. I don't know if you ever been hit by a, you know, you get you might be hit by one of the top women in um, uh, UFC, right? And it might hurt you. Yeah. Generally, women can hit you, and it. Well, and, and there's even, ways you don't, you don't even feel it. There's way. You you know, a, a woman who's written properly is probably going to solve that problem without beating up the 30 henchmen in a way that, like, a man would never even think right, to. Right, which is you just don't think. And that would be interesting. I mean, that, that could be relatively written interesting if you wrote women the way they actually are. But that's not the interest. The interest is they need to put a woman character in and then they write a man and then just make her have tits. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um. I have a one last question that I had prepared. Um, you've said that conservatives lack a scientific language to counter left-wing pseudoscience. Do yes. you think that you've developed a scientific language to counter it? Well, that's what I set out to do. I had no idea end up with all this crap. <laughs> My original goal was, uh, as I said a thousand times, just when, uh, when uh, the Gulf War started, uh, the Democratic Party had uh, were diverted to the communist technique of just talking points. So they wouldn't answer any questions. They would just go on television and repeat their talking points, regardless of whatever the question was. So this is just propagandizing. Right? So that's where Bill, that's where Fox News and what's his name? Bill O'Reilly came from. Yeah. Was the Fox News came out of the, the answer to that problem. And so we got, uh, we, we returned to journalism. And now then it's gone party affiliations, but originally that was the case. So when I was watching this originally happen, I was saying to myself, well, um, why is it that conservatives make moral arguments that express problems that will occur over time? <coughs> and um, leftists make rational arguments that talk about experiences in time. And why can't republic why can't Republicans and conservatives explain their ideas in scientific instead of moral terms? So I set out to do what I exact one thing, which was I want to create a value neutral language, universally commensurable, value neutral language of ethics and politics. I succeeded. The problem was around 2012 or 13, somewhere in there, I realized that they were so good at lying. And so uh, I had to solve the problem of what is truth and how do we test for it? Right. right. So, right. And of course, then I get reciprocity out of it. So I got truth and reciprocity out of it. Now I started saying, okay, now how do I suppress lying 
in all this subject matter across. So that took me the rest until uh, two years ago. Because if you start looking at this, I had to science. Solving truth was no was hard enough. Solving the art of lying, <coughs> which there's a science of now, because right? I've made a sense. That was really, really hard. So what I've tried to do is give conservatives, well, principally everyone, universally commensurable, value-neutral language, wherein it's not that you're right or wrong. It's, it's that you're right or wrong and you're innocent or criminal. And so I've changed the Greek method, which presumes innocence and error, and I've restored it to the common law method of debate, which is you might be right or wrong, but you also might be innocent or criminal. And so I've showed that almost all of the lying that goes on is crime. Even when you don't know it, you're a criminal. So I've criminalized the art of, I've created the law, the science, uh, logic, and law of criminalizing irreciprocity and falsehood. Lying. And so once you have that, now you can go back and use it across. Sorry, for some reason my asthma is picking up. Um, no, now no you problem. Go back and, uh, so, so now you can go back and say, okay, how do we revise all the law so that there's a strict construction of the Western group evolutionary strategy, which is just natural law of reciprocity and sovereignty. How do I strictly construct that, strictly construct the uh, rights, obligations, and alienations, and reconstruct the whole constitution and all the policies that conform to truth and reciprocity, which is the natural law. And in doing so, I found the six holes or so in the original constitution and the two four sort of holes that emerged later. And um, <coughs> the end result is that people see my sex differences in lying as and group strategy as, as a primary innovation, but it's just a consequence of the previous innovations I've come up with. So, you, you know, I didn't set out to unite the sciences, right? I just set out to make, how can we make adult conversation for conservatives? <laughs> right. That's all I set out to do, and the rest of it's just an accident. You you set out to do one thing, but it turned out to be way grander than what you expected. Yeah, no, so. no sane person would do this. Right? right, you wouldn't set out to do it. It, it sounds crazy. Although Bentham originally thought he could, didn't. Um, the second thing is it's you can't do it in the academy because you right. can't do something across all disciplines. And even if you did, the output of what you're saying, I mean, I get kicked out of the academy like once a week. Yeah. So, so I mean, you can't – I had to do it on my own, and thankfully I had enough wealth to do it, so – well, that's good. The uh, The final question I have for you is, what life advice would you give to your 25-year-old self? Oh, uh, you don't want, you won't like it. <clears throat> I don't like it. Um, women don't matter. They're an obstacle to greatness. And you can, and don't try to make them happy great greatness and the ones that are worth it will come along. And uh, otherwise women are an utter waste of time, money, and effort. <clears throat> and unfortunately that's wasn't my, had the opposite opinion, partly because I'm a nerd, right? Yeah. So I felt like I needed to be validated um, uh, socially in order to, and I spent way too much time, effort, money, and, uh, whatever else 
um, on women when realistically uh, I would have been six, I would have been more successful if I had just waited. Yeah. The, the right women were attracted and just ignored them. Now that, that sounds horrible, but it's actually the only, it's actually, there's, there, there are actually a couple pieces. There's one is a, one is that the second one was, when a fucking department head in your university says, I want you to come into my department, you understand what that means and you take the thing. You don't say, no, I think I'd rather do this. <coughs> you take the, the request because that's that treatment is powerful and I passed on it. The second one is the women thing. The third thing is make uh, try to make a friend of everybody you possibly can and you'll be surprised how effective it, it is and how good you'll get at it. And the last is that when you want to quit, just do it because my major regret in my professional life is when I resigned because the board wouldn't listen to me. And then they pulled on my loyalty strings to make me stay and it damn near killed me. Yeah. <clears throat> Understandable. Thank you, Kurt. Um, where can where can people uh, read more about you? And uh, when's the book coming out? Is it done yet? When it's done. Well, I mean, it, it's is it in readable form? No. Just just for the audience, I, I I break his balls about it. I have like a leaked early copy of it. Of you know, I hacked his website, got a hold of that. You know, I I go through all kinds of shenanigans over when's the book going to be done. <laughs> the problem, the thing is, you can see what's online, but you can't see what's in the word documents. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so the word documents are really it. And you know, you start out with the you know three thousand pages, you get it down to fifteen hundred, you get it down to seven eight hundred. Now it's I can get it to two or three hundred pages, so it's it's something I, I can actually write it in a long a twenty page paper today, right? Which is if I get it to a twenty page paper, that means I've made it concise and understandable enough for for most people. Because the way I wrote it previously, I I didn't I had to tell too many stories to get things across instead of just rely on logic. Well, if, if you ever do publish the book, uh, please come back. We would love to have you on to promote it. So, um, I'll be in the same you know. trap everybody other author is. You just said your name out and you take every everything you have. Of course, friends like you, I've got to have to give priority to, of course, right? Appreciate that. Yes. So. All right, Kurt. Well, where can people? Uh, where else can people find you online? So I recommend people follow me on Twitter. I'm Twitter Kurt Doolittle. Nothing else. Just C U R T E D O O. And I recommend you find me there. And if you want to follow me there, then you can go to the website. The website's probably over your head, but Twitter you can ask questions and read these and sort of follow along and begin to get it to us. Yeah. Well, Twitter's my favorite place to uh, interact as well. So you know. And especially now they have long form, I can go back to educational pieces. And if you see people who follow me for a long time, I say, we're bringing back the great era of Kurt on Facebook. Because <laughs> I basically run a college class 24 hours a day, right? So, yeah, I think your Twitter used to be uh, horrendous, to be honest. It was my main yep. problem with you. Uh, it was so easy to take you out of context because it was just yep. everything was out of context, Kurt. You're reacting yep. to somebody without me being able to see it. But recently, your Twitter has been pretty fire. Yeah, it's getting there. But I, I need long form because you can't make it. You can't make art an argument like I make. With start a yes. start a Substack if if you want my. I mean, Substack is kind of like long form. It's not owned by Twitter, but <clears throat> it has. Uh, you know, 
you can write long form on there. So. Yeah, can I, I wonder if there's a bot that allows me to post from Twitter to Substack. If there is, I would do it. I'm yeah. willing to bet. Yeah, I, I think there is. I'll, I'll hook you, I'll try and find You're going to hook me up if you could find out? Yeah. No, absolutely, I will. So. I've I'm been... just trying to say, I want to have one place because this, I've tried to cut down social media so that I only deal with decent people. Yeah, no, I, I, I understand that too. I, I, that's, that's why I'm pretty much like I have, I have a Facebook account, but I, I no longer go on there just because Facebook seems to be like a, a flaming dumpster fire more so than Twitter is. Um, and then Instagram, it's, it's just photos. So there's nothing really well, there. The whole thing with Twitter and, and Facebook is Facebook has more, way more people. Yeah. Twitter <coughs> excuse me. Twitter has a subset of people and that to some degree that's better. But the Twitter but Facebook had long form. So you know if you look at the stuff I wrote on Quora, I mean it still gets five thousand views a week, right? Yeah. Right. But I can't write that on Facebook or Twitter. Well now I can. So I'd rather just keep it in one place and then project from there because um, it's just easier for me to work that way. Anyway. Yeah. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope I answered the questions you wanted. We certainly covered a lot of different topics. Oh, you guys yeah. Are very interesting. You ask interesting questions, so I had a lot of fun. I want to thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we'll talk to John down the road, Kurt. Thanks for coming on. And, uh, folks, thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on next week's episode. Thanks for listening to The Whitfield Report on the NGC Network. Please visit Sam's website at www.thesamwhitfield.com and support Sam on Patreon at patreon.com slash whitfieldreport. Until next time, God bless, God save this great nation, and God, freedom, legacy, in that order.